this is The Janet Lewis Show. Welcome to episode 28. Today, we're going to be talking with Mike Ligori, an Iraq war veteran, author, and founder of Live Your Truth Media. Mike started out his career in the United States Marine Corps, and when he returned home from Iraq, he was met with the challenge of participating in an unfamiliar society, a world that had changed so much. But he also faced returning as a different person than when he had left. He suffered from PTSD, struggled to move forward, and hit rock bottom. Mike was able to overcome so many challenges and eventually started out his civilian career in sales and marketing, and then launched his own business, Live Your Truth Media, in 2019. Live Your Truth Media focuses on what matters the most when it comes to content marketing and podcasting. They want to help people create the most powerful stories and provide the best possible experience for listeners. They help to brainstorm ideas, show you how to structure episodes, how to edit your audio, and how to promote your show. Mike has worked on award-winning teams and has been featured in the Huffington Post and has worked with some pretty big names in the podcasting world, like the Steve Weatherford Show and Big Queen Energy, just to name a few. Mike is also a gifted storyteller and has written two books, The Sandbox, Stories of Human Spirit and War, and The Road Ahead and Miles Behind. We're going to explore Mike's life journey, how we got to where he is today. We will talk about who and what has influenced him, the challenges he had along the way, and what gives him energy to keep moving forward. We'll also talk about why he decided to start his own company and get into the joys and woes of running your own business. So Mike, thank you for joining me today. Oh, Janet, thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. The last time we talked, we talked for so long. So. <laughs> yes, yeah, we talked for a very long time, but it was it's always it was a really uh, powerful, really amazing conversation. I love having those types of conversations with uh, with people like that. So thank you. Yeah, so I think one of my biggest challenges is going to be keeping us like to an hour today. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll be on it. I'll be on it. All um, right. So just so everybody knows, um, I met Mike about a month ago. Uh, so we both belong to the Summit of Greatness group with Lewis Howes, and I had responded to one of Mike's posts, and then we set up a call to chat, and it was so funny because like, I honestly felt like we knew each other from before because we just got into it, and yeah. we talked so much about like relationships with others, why they work, and why they're trouble sometimes, and you know, one of the things that I found super refreshing is you're very open and vulnerable to sharing the struggles you've had. And I loved everything about that conversation. Um, and the other thing is like, as I started to research you, um, you know, people's comments about you are how like you've worked so hard, like you're always a hard worker, you always deliver and you always want to add value. And I love that because those things mm -hmm. are also important to me. So we have like a lot of little connectors that kind of make sense. So Mike, perhaps we only have an hour. We have a lot sure. to cover, um, but perhaps we can start off with like a little bit of your story. Like, where did you grow up? Uh, what was it like? What were you passionate about as a young boy? And then we can kind of move through your career path and then into like what made you want to start your own business. And I also want to delve into your latest book a little bit if we have time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first off, thank you so much for that. And it's you know, there, there's nothing better in the world when you receive affirmations from people you've worked with and friends and colleagues of yours. Um, that's really, truly reflective of the effort and the value that you care about what they're doing. And so um, I'm always so gracious to receive those things. At the end of the day, it's like what 
makes me put, um, it needs to go to sleep easier at night. Just so you know, that's like, wow, that felt really good. I put in a good day's work and to receive that stuff. Um, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I am the oldest of four boys. Uh, I, as a young boy, was really passionate um, about my imagination. And what I mean by that is, is I always had stories or I had characters or I had lands and um, games in my head. And I would often go outside by myself as a young kid and just play for hours and just live in this world, um, a very expansive world. It was another reason why I was so into video games when I was a kid too, because it was an expansive world or reading books and stories, very expansive worlds. And so my imagination to me was just getting bigger and bigger. And I loved it really. And I would like practice, you know, writing stories. I would practice, you know, thinking of characters and how deep would I go. And obviously as I grow, grew up, uh, I learned more techniques about how to develop characters as well. And so uh, for me, when I was a kid, I actually, ironically, despite having a really big imagination and loving stories, I was very reluctant to even be a writer. In fact, my mom, my sophomore year in high school was like, you know, you should be a writer and go to journalism school. And I was like, absolutely not. I'm, I, I can't, I don't want to do writing. I'm over it. Um, there's, there's no, there's no career path with that mom. And like, I don't want to be an, you know, an English major and just like be an English major and read books all the time. And then like, write like it, it sounds great now, but you know, back then when you're 16 years old, you have these big dreams and aspirations and, you know, sitting and reading and writing, uh, didn't well, see. Okay. So what, what did you want to do when you were 16 then? What were you thinking? Uh, well, when I was eight years old, I wanted to be a fireman. Um, and then I wanted to play in the NFL. And then uh, I wanted to do both. <laughs> and then so, um, so, you know, I think my true calling in life didn't really uh, open up for me until September 11th, 2001 happened when, um, you know, here in the US, the 9-11 was a really horrific day for us. And for many uh, men and women, when they will remember that day for the rest of their lives all over the world, not just in the US, but as a high school senior, when you're kind of looking through the lens of, I'm going to go to junior college, do really well in school, because I was not a great student, like was not a great student. I did not like school. Um, I was a kid that like wanted to go do stuff that was more interactive rather than sitting behind the desk and like reciting information. And so when 9-11 happened, I felt a pull to service. And this was something that was not very, uh, this was not like a, a theme that was taught in my family. And that's not to say we didn't volunteer or help out people. My mom was always giving, always had her door open to people to feed them and to welcome into her home. But it's a different lens of service when you're looking at putting yourself in a position to defend something, um, especially in a country in this realm of ideologies that you truly believe in, you know, freedom, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So as an 18-year-old kid, to look at the junior college route and say, you know, that just doesn't seem big enough for me. Joining the Marine Corps and fighting the war seems bigger to me. Being a part of something where I could dramatically transform my life felt bigger to me. And I didn't know what was on the other side of that. Uh, so when I was 18, I ended up joining the Marine Corps. I walked down the recruiter's office the week of September 11th. And I went down there and the recruiter said, you're 17 years old, you can't join the, the military yet. When you're 18, 
you can come back and sign in. So I said, okay. So I waited, ironically, until November 11th, which happens to be Veterans Day in the US and also my birthday. And two months exactly from 9-11. And I went into the office, into the recruiter's office, and I decided to join. And so my career in the military took me uh, two tours in Iraq for a total of 15 months, late 2004 to early 2005. And then I went back in 2005 all the way to 2006. And then I got out. <clears throat> I also did a tour in Okinawa, Japan. So I was pretty much overseas for about 27 months total, 28 months. So it's a little over two years of my four-year enlistment, I was gone. And I remember coming home and it was uh, quite the change, quite the change in the, in the transition. Yeah. Like I, I, um, like I lived overseas in Asia for two and a half mm -hmm. years. And I even think when I came home and I wasn't even experiencing like what we were experiencing, I was teaching English, right. as a second language. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, it just seemed like busier and noisier and like, you didn't really know how to fit in and, and, and I wasn't dealing with all the other stuff that you would have had on top of you as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you first came home, like, what were you thinking? How were you feeling? Did you yeah. know, even know what you wanted to do next? Cause I at least knew I was coming home only to go to teacher's college. Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. I, I think when I came home and I think, and I'll, and I'll take a step back and look at the macro view, a lot of people that are, uh, inundated in military culture, whether it's, you know, a foreign military uh, or it's U.S. military, the military is, is one of the most forefront in terms of organization and structure and teaching young people a system that is proven to work, which is a system of accountability, responsibility, and initiative to make things happen for yourself. If you felt lost or you feel lost at any point in time as a young person, the military gives you a blueprint to say, this is how you wear your hair. This is how you do things. Right. This is you speak to people out of respect. It is yes, sir, no, sir, or yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And it's if you have an order, you are told to do something from somebody that is your boss or somebody that's in a leadership position for you, you go do it because it's about the mission. It's not a, you don't you don't make decisions based on your feel you make decisions based on what you need to do right and so it's that whole line of thinking and when i came home not having that structure was really tough because i knew i had a sergeant i had a staff sergeant i had a i had a lieutenant i had a, a colonel i had a chain of command of people who were telling me the this is why we do things this is the mission your objective is dot 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 you will do this dot 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 it actually takes a lot of thinking out well, how do I feel about this? And these are things that you are not encouraged to really do in the military. You're encouraged to do that when you enter school in some aspects in college. So for me as a young man going from a public school where I was very lost, I, you know, I thought I wanted to play in the NFL, a war starts, I end up joining, and now doing four years where I have this blueprint and I have these decisions being made almost for me. Yeah. And my job is your performance you know, Mike is to go out there, do what you're told to do, combat or garrison environment, and then come home and you're done. And then you get another mission, you do it again. And when you get out of the military and you don't have that, yeah, what's the next mission? Because nobody's feeding it down to you. And when you get out, you're out. That's it. 
Sure, there's organizations that are out there that'll help you with the transition, but this is 2006 we're talking about. This is 2006, and I had been a veteran in a war that half the country did not understand at that time or were not in favor of. The other half still believed it was in the face of liberty and patriotism. So coming home to a, to a country divided over a war and not feeling like I was going to get that next mission, what that was, it was very hard. The transition was a, was a, was a very tough process. Yeah, well, and it's it's like you're going from this environment, and I can relate it to real world for people, because I've mm. heard this from so many people where you're working at a large organization, and you have a manager, and they have a manager, and everyone's telling you what to do, and they give mm. you the company mission, and you have your goals, and you have your performance indicators that you have to meet, and then you decide to leave and start your own business. Mm. And then you have to like make all the decisions yourself and you have to come up with your mission, your goals for your company, what you're doing on the daily basis, or isn't someone telling you what to do anymore. And so I've talked to a lot of like new business owners that really struggle with that. Like mm -hmm. they just don't know what to do with their time because they're like, there's so many decisions to make. And how do I know where to spend my time? And I just want someone else to make the decisions. And I'm like, but you're running your own business now. <laughs> right. Yeah. You have to make the decisions, right? But layered on top of that, um, you're not only dealing with like, you know, losing that command and authority, you're also like trying to re-enter into a society, but you're also dealing with some emotional things that are coming up for you as well, right? Yes. I mean, and, and, and imagine that your compass is being directed and guided by something else. And then the compass is taken away from you and you're stuck out in the middle of, of a, an environment that you don't know what no, true North is. So here I am going into a college environment as a war veteran, uh, integrating myself with kids who are 17, 18 years old, freshly out of college. And then, you know, junior college in the United States is all walks of life, as you know, some people go back to school 20, 30 years later, some people don't, but here I was coming home from a misunderstood war, looking for my next mission. And, you know, for everybody out there that, you know, is looking for some real world example to relate to, college is a very similar experience. You go to college and become study your subject and thinking if I'm a philosophy major, I'm going to do some work in philosophy and you end up going into a tech company. The disconnect there is, is that I studied something for four years to work into another job, realizing where is the mission and the alignment for what I chose to do with my field? I thought I had a choice and that's what I was going to do. Some fields are more in alignment than others. Yeah. Now, also take about it with professional sports athletes. You train your entire life from the time you were a young kid all the way into the pros. You get into the professional sports leagues. You play for five years. In some sports, it's three years is the average career. Some, if you're lucky, if you're Tom Brady, you're playing for 20 years. But Tom Brady's in his 40s, and all he's known is football. So what yeah. about the transition piece after that? And so I think for a lot of us is that we're looking in a lot of ways for the easy solution in the sense of, can someone tell me what the true north is and tell me what direction to go so I can make decisions better instead of looking inside of us and saying, all it really comes to and asking ourselves a set of questions that will help dictate and help us understand what it is that we truly want. And I think in a lot of ways, 
or whether we're running a business or whether I was coming home, it wasn't so much that I didn't know what to do. It was the fear of the ownership piece of making the decision of doing what I wanted to do because there was the fear of failure. And as they say, the higher, you, the closer you get to the top of the mountain, the fear of failure that you're going to fall off and kill yourself is much greater because you're a lot higher than you were before. Yeah. Yeah. That totally makes sense. So then how did you, like, how did you end up getting to the point where you kind of moved through that fear then? Yeah. Well, I, I have to tell you, you know, in, in full disclosure, the journey took me a very long time. And, you know, it was from the time I got into the, into college um, and recognizing in 2007 that I had a moderate case of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder from combat, combat PTSD. And I didn't know what that was. The doctor team at that time uh, was pretty vague in their description. And it was, you know, it's not a knock on them, but it wasn't really something of, of, it wasn't commonplace that we talked about when it came to mental health at that time. It was, what is this? And it was like, well, it's an anxiety disorder. And it's, well, what, what else is this? Well, it, uh, it, it can create anything from hypervigilance to severe isolation and depression. Imagine your car being stuck in either fight or flight, never in neutral. So it's either you're overly aggressive or you're just, you know, you're angry or agitated or irritable, or you're withdrawn and you're socially isolated and you just want to be alone and you're depressed. There is no neutral. And it's actually, in a lot of ways, it's a normal reaction to abnormal events. And I think it's very important that we distinguish that because I think a lot of people don't really know what PTSD is, but like what, what men and women see in a, in a traumatic situation, it doesn't have to be combat. It can be car accidents. It could be anything else. It is an, a normal reaction to abnormal events. And for me to understand that it took years, it took therapy, it took a support system. Um, God bless the therapist that I worked with because I was not an easy patient and I tried my, and I, I wasn't, and I, and I tried so hard and I made one commitment to myself and that commitment was no matter how tough it was going to be, I was going to show up every week. I wasn't going to miss a session. I was going to go in and do the work because I knew the only way forward was through. Yeah. So how I got through it was I exposed myself to new ideas and I dealt with the fears and once I realized that these were fears of situations being constructed in my mind, um, there was no truth or reality to them. It was just a fear of the unknown, the fear of the uncertainty that like, came with it. So I worked through it. Yeah. And, and, and I think to give yeah. yourself a break, like, you know, um, you're saying how you feel like it took you a really long time to get through it. You have mm. to think too, like, you're also still young. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like someone, um, I don't want to be ageist, but I don't, I, and I don't know this for sure, but you're still young. You're still growing, developing. Mm -hmm. You're probably not, you weren't probably as introspective as you are now. So mm -hmm. like getting to the root of some of the, those things at an older age, if you are introspective might be a little bit easier, or you might be able to move through it faster. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, and again, this is not to be an ageist either, but it's just, if you think about it, the older we get, the more stuck we are into the things that we truly believe in, because over time life has shaped us like this ball of clay. We're not as malleable as we were when we were a kid. Kids are very expansive. They ask questions, they have ideas. 
Um, they just say things that they wanted that just come out. There's no filter on them. As we get older as adults, we start learning, oh, shouldn't say this in this environment, or I shouldn't be acting this way, or this is what you do. And it just kind of life just kind of molds and shapes you and um, turns you into a version of yourself. And so it actually gets really hard for us, the older that we get, the more that we experience for our minds to create something new and possible because we've experienced so much already. You see this a lot in people who've gotten, just specifically if we talk about business, people who get burned in business a lot learn the lesson that you don't do anything without contracts, right? Where it's like you go in and first in your business, you become a yes person. You're looking for every single opportunity to grow your business. But then once you get screwed over a couple of times or somebody takes advantage of you, you start going, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing that anymore. Yet when you first started that, you had an open-mindedness and a willingness to trust the other person on the side of the table that there was going to be good that came out of that deal. So this is regardless of age. This is just more of the experiences that we have in terms of what our businesses are like and what we want from them. And it's hard because the deeper we get into the business, the more resistant become the change because we find stuff that works for us. Yes. And what works for us is the bottom line. If we're making money and something works, that usually takes precedent over how we feel about something. And so, and so for me, when you talk about, and, and I appreciate, you know, and I appreciate, you know, being able, just hearing those words from you, just about, you know, you've experienced so much yet you're so young, you know, for me, the work that I had to do was to really say, I want to get on the other side of this. And I think helping everybody recognize and understand that whatever you're going through, there has to be another side to this and there has to be a goal. And it may not seem achievable from where you are right now, but if you can create a path forward and visualize yourself at the end of what you're going to be, it makes it a lot easier. Nobody's promising you that that line to where you want to be on the other side is going to be a straight path. Nobody's going to tell you that it's easy. But I have found at least if you were to say, hey, Mike, You came home with a very severe experience of war, but I promise you, if you go to therapy, if you do the work, if you take up meditation, if you take up journaling, if you go to support groups, if you have a family around you, if you pour into your self-development and help, you are going to be this version of who you are now, um, which is a version that I could not even have imagined 14 years ago, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, I could not have imagined who I am right now. And do do you think, do you think like in the beginning when you were thinking about going to therapy or maybe someone told you you had to go to therapy, did you buy into it or did you, were you just like, I guess I better just go. Like, what was your, how, how did you approach that? Were you open to it or were you closed to it? I, I actually was um, the one that checked myself into the emergency room at a hospital. And so, cause I knew something was wrong with me and my, my parents have always done a good job that it's, you know, you're the one that knows better about yourself than anybody else. So I knew something was off. So I went and it took a support group. It took veteran nonprofits to support me. It took a community of people to say, you know, Mike, just keep going. It's hard. I didn't buy into so much that therapy was just the end all be all. And I, that was going to get fixed. I knew there was like a very more holistic solution, but what I did have was I had an ideology of the person I was going to become because I deep down 
remember telling myself this in the brunt of the battle, so to speak, in the war within. I said to myself, I don't want to wake up one day, you know, 40 years old with a wife and two kids and my kids looking at me and going like, dad's sick again. Why? Yeah. Because that's the stress that I'm putting on then. And then that actually creates more stress for me. And then I'm sitting there going, I've spent my entire life avoiding the thing that I could control, which is my experiences and my emotional state and reaction to it. So the work's not easy, but there's books out there. There's people who want to help you. There's an opportunity for you to take ownership of that. And if you say, Mike, you just, you got to do is take ownership and show up to your appointments and do what you're, you're being asked to do. And people will help you. I would say that yes to that 10 out of 10 times. And I'm glad I did because this is where I'm at right now. Yeah. And so, um, you went through that process as you were Mm -hmm. going through the process, like Obviously you, you graduated college, you got into like your first job. Yeah. Um, when you got into your first job, were you still dealing with the PTSD or do you think that you had kind of like moved forward with it? Yeah. Um, you know, with PTSD, it really depends, you know, and I'm not a medical professional, so I can't, you know, I can't tell you that there's a cure to it, or I can't tell you anything of that stuff because I, one, I don't truly know if this is just based on my own experiences. Uh, For me, I was always dealing with it and it just manifests itself in different ways. You know, for me, it manifests itself from being less afraid of being in public and more uh, anxious about doing your job at work or saying things. So I remember there was a, during my first job working at a, working at a tech company, I remember you know, would being when every time I voiced my opinion, I would be so in over in this hyperdrive of overthinking of, oh my God, did I say something wrong? Did I offend somebody? And I remember that that was part of the anxiety I felt from my war trauma because I knew the war had happened. It was on his box in the shelf. But sometimes what happened for me, at least, is that those traits and symptoms that came from my war experience actually manifested itself into things that in my work environment were the other challenge, which was, did I say something bad to my boss? Did I write this email properly? Um, There was even ways of defensiveness that came in. I remember there was one job I had in my career where I would get defensive to feedback and criticism. So instead of listening, I would automatically feel, take that personally, like you're trying to attack me. And um, I had a really amazing boss at the time um, who saved my career. And how he saved my career is he pulled me into his office and he was a vet too, and he sat me down and he said, this is not the military. And I just looked at him like, well, what do you mean? I know that's not the military. And he said, no, no, I want you to hear me. This is not the military. You're going to be asked to think critically and to listen more and observe and stop thinking it's all about you. He's like, I want you to understand that like, just because you're a veteran, you already have skills that a lot of people in the workforce don't have, but you're missing the key piece, which was observe and listen first. Mm. And you're not doing that. You're taking everything personally for yourself. And that was a big change for me. Because that taught me that despite what I learned and what I knew and what I'm very good at, it was the intangible people skills and knowing and recognizing that just because when you're in a military unit, it's kind of like hierarchy, mission, 
you can talk to people in a certain type of way and you could offend people in a certain type of way because it was all about, quote, policing your own. And so if you see somebody doing something wrong, you had every single right and obligation to that person to say, hey, you're doing this wrong. It's impacting the entire unit. Well, when you get into a work environment, it's definitely like a doggy dog environment and you're trying to compete with somebody else. But the problem is, is that you're so worried about yourself that you get create this like world or this container in which you think everybody's either attacking you or you have to be on the offensive all the time. And I learned that it's not what people say, it's how they say it. Yeah. And that's the, cre- the key skill was, it was actively listening to people and then making decisions. It was coming up with plans and then making decisions. It wasn't like a, a Marine type t- attitude in a combat situation where guys are on the front lines kicking in doors and then like, you know, go in there, clear that building. And you're like, yes, sir. And you would do your job. You, it's not like that in, in aspects of business. You have to learn that your ambition and your initiative is such an amazing trait but it requires a lot more to be from a good to great. You have to be able to step into a place of active listening, gathering information, making good decisions, and also knowing there's other people besides you that will be impacted by your decisions. Even if you're a solopreneur and entrepreneur, people will be impacted by every single decision that you make, whether it's on the customer side, freelancer side, or your family. Everybody gets impacted by the decision you make, whether it's a big big decision or a small one. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, you have so many nuggets in there. I love it. But you started off in sales, right? Mm-hmm. So that could explain yeah. for like a little bit of the competitiveness because sales is always yeah. like a little bit dog eat dog, right? How mm-hmm. did you transition transition from sales to get into like marketing and content creation and even podcasting? Sure. Yeah. Well, when I did sales first off, uh, I did sales because it was a job. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to do sales. Why not? Um, The thing about sales is sales teaches you persistence. And I was really good at persistence because I already been through like a lot of stuff in my life already. And I've already had dealt with an enormous amount of adversity all the way from the time that I uh, did boot camp in the military. That was just that the whole entire military career is all about adversity and adapting to it. So now here I am dealing with all this adversity and I'm like, oh, this is nothing. You know, this is, I can deal with, I can deal with being told no. Sales to me, what I found out is after I, and I remember my first couple of months, I wasn't getting sales and I went to my trainer and I said, you know, I feel like I'm not doing something correct. And they said, okay, well, let's listen to your calls. And I noticed that when I would get on the calls, I was very much trying to answer the question that I had asked for them. So how many of us have done that, right? I'm gonna, let me ask you a question. I'm going to tell you what the answer is. And then next thing you know, um, yeah, okay. And then you should buy this product for me. <laughs> so the person on the other side is looking at you like, well, you've already answered, you're answering the questions that you want me to answer to you to tell me why I need this product or solution that you're offering. And I noticed that I was doing that because I had been so used to being like, give orders or take orders. And my trainer said, I want you to approach things from a consultative standpoint, Mm. actually guide these people. But most importantly, and this is a key thing here in the story of my life is, Mike, you're such a great storyteller. Because I had like, you know, because I had kind of like, you know, 
BSed with them in the in the kitchens or the the kind of the the kitchens and the break rooms and stories from the military because people would ask me my whole entire life outside of that, you know, what was it like over there? And I would tell them stories about my service and I would just tell them stories that I, you know, all the times that I had, uh, all the times that I had that were really fun. And my trainer said, tell them a story or be the story, like give them something, give them something that they can remember because we connect is for everybody. It's like storytelling is so essential for us as business owners, because it's actually how we relate to each other. It's not about how great your product is or how wonderful you are. I'm sure everybody out there is super wonderful, but it's, it's the way that you connect with somebody. That's, that's a story. And then they get it. So I tried it. And I started noticing people were buying because I was painting these pictures and these stories for them and asking them questions. And the more questions I asked them, the more the story started piecing together. And then I started realizing that there was a formula here. The better my questions were, the more information I could get, the more I can build back, build the story with the bricks and lay the foundation. And then I would repeat back to them all the information I gathered. And then it created a story for them that they go, I need this. And that's what changed for me. Um, and I think it's, and I think, you know, it's interesting to make the gap from that to marketing. It's the same thing. Marketing is all storytelling. It's all branding. It's true. Every, and you know, even Nike to this day is still building their brand. Everybody for the rest of your life, there is no end to branding and there is no end to marketing. You will constantly be telling a story. It may be a new story. Maybe it's definitely going to be a different story. It's going to be a new story or a variation of the story that your company was built on. But remember that you're always building the brand. And the moment you stop telling the story of your brand, your brand will die. Yeah. You know, it's so funny that you say that because when I started my e-commerce business, I, I started in like 2006 mm-hmm. and um, I always felt like, oh my God, I'm telling this story again. People have already heard this story. I need to t- say a different story. But the one thing that I kind of learned, and I'd love to hear your take on this, it's like, just because you tell a story one time, two times, three times, maybe five times, it doesn't mean that everybody's heard it. Mm-hmm. And now in like today's marketing, people actually need to hear from you or learn something about you. And whether it's the same story or a slight variation, I think the stat has gone up to like eight to 10 times Yeah. before they yeah. will even consider buying from you. Right. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And imagine like in just for something for you, are you telling the story of your company from the days when you first started? Or are you telling the story of you right now and what you're looking forward to? Yeah, it's it's those are good questions because I, th- right. I think you can do both. Right. But but it is like, how are you getting that customer on your journey? How are you making them part of your world? And I just attended um, Ad World and Ecom World. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest things that they're, everyone is promoting now is about building a community. And yep. because of what's happening with like um, privacy and tracking and cookies, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to be able to market to people the way that you used to in the past. So yep. it's important to build a community. Right. And communities are built on stories. So anytime that you want to get members, we see this in religions, we see this in nonprofits, we see this with sports the every organization has a story that builds fan bases and audience members so if you think of your favorite sports team 
they have had and you know for for us in the u.s american football is like is a massive sport you have to imagine that teams like the pittsburgh steelers the green bay packers teams that have been around since the dawn of the end of the chicago bears these teams have built their entire brand around the stories of the franchise the pioneers of the sports the championships the golden years and those stories always tie back to the current tradition. When players get drafted by these teams, they're a part of history. So stories always encompass history. And for, you know, for people out there looking, well, how do I tell a really good story? The genesis of your story is just as important to the future of your story. You have to build and connect that bridge together. So everybody does want to hear the origin story, the genesis of your story. How did you start? Why did you start your company? What, it, what were you doing at that time? How did you build this thing? And that's great. But they also want to know, you've been doing this for 15 years, 20 yeah. years. What's the future for you? And that is a story in itself. And actually, that's the creation and the expansion part that I want entrepreneurs to really think about here is, is that the origin story, the genesis, what you've accomplished is so important. But we live in a what have you done for me lately society. Yeah. And you have to understand that. You could tell me that you were number one in AdWorld in 2007. You were the best brand in 2012. You could tell me all the awards that you've won. That does not mean that you are the best right now. What that tells me is, is that you have a track record and a proven metric of success by receiving awards or accolades for the job that you've done. But where are you going now? What's the top of the mountain for you? And if you guys are film buffs, some people will tell you, well, Meryl Streep is the best actress in yeah. the game. Why? Who's the best? Tom Brady's the greatest of all time. Why? They're still because for them, there's another mountaintop. They're not just like on cruise control. They're still winning championships. They're still trying to build a brand. They're still competitive. There's a drive for them that is so much bigger than the game. It's about their legacy and it's about something for them that they'll be chasing their whole lives. As entrepreneurs, where are we doing that? You do that yeah. through the story. The story is the mountaintop. It's the genesis, the origin, it's the future, it's the present, it's the now. And you have to build and piece that all together because people want to get super excited. Yeah. People want to get super excited about what you're doing. It's like a little mini class for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. That's so nice of you. No, it really is. It's super nice of you. Thank you so much for saying that. So when I build my next business, I'm going to come talk to you. <laughs> yeah, please do. I'm here. I'm here. More than happy. And, but, and, and you know, Janet, but the other thing is, as well is, is that, you know, they're the, the, the flip side of that is that entrepreneurs tend to beat themselves up too because entrepreneurs by habit need things to be done perfectly in every single moment of time because one, it's a control thing. And two, we still have this kind of um, issue, I believe, in the entrepreneurial community where delegation is seen as this like, uh, as this virus. It's like the fear of delegation is the virus. I have to do everything myself because nobody understands what I'm doing better than I do. Yes. Dear entrepreneurs, that is absolutely true. Nobody is going to sell your company as well as you. Nobody is going to stay up late nights and early mornings and bust their butts just as much as you. That's the reality. You can pay people who, would, who will bleed for you, but you're the one that started the company. 
But you have to understand in terms of scalability and in terms of trust and in terms of building relationships with customers, you are limited as an individual in your capacity to give everybody what you demand for yourself and for your company. And so you have to scale. You have to get people on your team to buy into that, which all comes from what? The story. If you want to recruit people, you have to tell them the story. You have to tell them your reason for existence. So it's very important that, that the scalability piece and building companies and building brands and building trust, which is what community is built on. Community is built on trust. It's built on like-minded ideas. And it's also built on the idea that change can happen through the story that you're telling. You have to tell a really good story. So I want everybody just to make sure story is not just selling to customers. Yeah. Story is also recruiting people. Story is also how you change. Story is also a dynamic thing that's being constantly rewritten. We can do that for ourselves. We can write the story of our lives at any point in time. And we can also write the stories of our company at any point in time, how we wish those to be. Yeah, it's true. And it's kind of interesting because I I feel like I'm getting a mini class from you on like, how are you touching all the points I need to work on? <laughs> Did you research me? What is happening here? No, but um, but it's true. And, and I think like for me, and I think I shared with this with you in our last conversation that we had, is I feel like for the past little bit, I've been like playing small. And which is weird because I've been an entrepreneur forever. And it's like entrepreneurs never play small right? Mm -hmm. It's like, you're going to go, if you're going to go, go. But I do feel like I went through a period of um, like, maybe like overwork, exhaustion, burnout. And mm. now I feel like I'm kind of like coming out of it. So it's like, mm. it's like you're gearing back up. You're like, Ooh, what's going to happen next? <laughs> right. So. so that's always exciting, but let's get back to like, how did you decide that you wanted to start your own business? Like, as yeah. opposed to working I for someone else? Yeah, totally. And I've had some amazing opportunities. And, and so, uh, you know, before I tee up this part, there's a, I want to take a step back because I had a, a friend uh, tell me that the word entrepreneur means to undertake. Mm. So if you think about that, entrepreneurs are driven to find opportunities and take on problems and take and solve problems and undertake tasks. So generally when entrepreneurs get burned out, the problem of the tasks that they wish to undertake is no longer appealing to them. Yes. And that's, and that's because the story that you're telling yourself around the mission of the task is in need of dire change for an evolution, another chapter. There's a reason why that there's stories that are so grand. If you think about Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. you could not tell Lord of the Rings in one book. It had to have three star Wars, the same thing. You couldn't tell the whole entire story of star Wars in one movie. There's now nine. And now there's an additional series because what you're doing is in that, in that franchise specifically, it wasn't the story that they were telling. It was a world. So you have to think bigger. And that's where the real cure for burnout can be is I need to create the world rather than just telling a story about my business or the problem that I'm undertaking. I want to create a world. And yeah. for me, I wanted to create a world and stop telling the story because the world that I wanted to create was people were selling themselves out for money in stories. And I'm not talking about the art of storytelling. I'm not saying you can't make money off your stories, but here's a great example. Many of us are building products to make money instead of building products to fill needs. And so we think about money first. 
And when we think about money first and we think about the bottom line, and I see this a lot in podcasting, I get this question from prospects and I get this question from people who are interested in working with me. I want to start a podcast. How do I make money off of it? And I go, time out. If you're thinking that way now, you will fail. Yeah. It's not about the money. It's not about the money. And so I wanted to create a world where I could help people understand that podcasting in this day and age is, I believe, the most effective, most authentic way to connect to a single person because it's two people conversating about an idea or a topic or a vision that you can extrapolate and take on for yourself and say, you know what? For example, we're both part of the, you know, that's how we met through the Lewis House Group. Lewis spent years, months building his network. He spent months building the podcast. I'm focusing on community. I'm focusing on community. I'm focusing on community. Before he even thought about monetizing it. And he still to this day is evolving and growing and changing the podcast. That's a formula. And that's somebody who didn't put the money the cart before the horse. That's somebody who said, I know I can make money off of this, but I got to satisfy people right now. I got to tap into my network. I got to deliver value. And I got to make this about the listener and the audience member. Yeah. Like I, in my career, one of the things um, that I've always thought, and I still think today, it's like, if you are chasing money, you're never going to win. You will not win. Like, so I'm going back into, I originally started out in e-learning and I'm like m- moving back into course creation. And one of the things that I'm finding about uh, the knowledge industry, that's kind of interesting, but I'm also like, I don't know where this is going is um, so many people out there are creating courses, which I think is great, mm-hmm. but there are so many people out there teaching them to figure out what their audience needs and then create a course around that, Mm -hmm. which is okay if they're bringing in experts around that topic. Mm -hmm. I have a difficult time that people are able to create a course in a weekend. I have a difficult time like wrapping my head around that because I've built hundreds of courses for large organizations. And I can tell you, none of them were ever done in a weekend. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, it's like, I don't understand, like, is there value there? And, and, you know, you're asking someone to pay money for what you've created. I just hope that they're giving them value for their money. Sure. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I would say, I would say one thing to, to, one thing to think about, and this is for everybody and not just you and I having this conversation, but it's to think about what is value. Yeah. It's how we deem that something to us. So some of us on here listening might say, oh, Ferrari is really expensive. Well, some other people might hear say, oh, no, Ferraris are really priced. Some people would say, oh, Ferraris are actually like less than I thought they were. Value is completely subjective to everybody. It's absolutely relative. And for all those of us who have been dating before, there is a reason why a lot of people say no to you before someone says yes. It's because they don't see you as value. And this is not to say you are not a valuable person or you are not a good person. But when someone is dating, they are dating with interest to find somebody that brings value to their life as they know that they are going to bring value to theirs. And so all it is is an agreement between two people that says, you bring value to my life, I bring value to yours, and this is a relationship. So whenever you think about it, if you go out and dating and saying, oh, 
I don't find this date valuable, or I actually don't find being with this person across from me dateable or of value, it actually makes things a little bit easier because then mm -hmm. you start realizing like, well, I don't value this, so they don't value me. And then it doesn't become personal. It's just everybody's trying to find the, the equal value that they're looking for in somebody else, whether your standards are extremely high or you may have a low bar, you know, whatever the case may be. So I think when you look at like coursework in your example too, the thing is, is that some people might find those weekend courses full of value, tons and tons of information. Mm -hmm. And they might go, this is what I need because I need something to go, I need to just get something and get it going. There are people like you out there though, that might say this course that I want to create is a lot more intensive. So the value that I'm bringing is for people who are going to be those intensive thinkers and yeah. doers who want to learn A to Z, the kitchen sink, soup to nuts, the entire across the board. And so there are people out there that would pay that money. But they might look at both of your courses and you might have done all this extra legwork and the person who might have done zero legwork or maybe two days worth sell it at the same price. It all depends on what the story that you're selling about the yeah, course. It's true. It's true. Because and, you know, I've realized myself, like when I attend a course, I really like the how to like I like. Yeah. Tell me exactly how to do it and then I can replicate it. You know, the big thinking is good um, for like talks. And where yeah. you're looking like your creative ideas, but I, I don't know if it's like should be marketed as of how to teach someone to do something. Well, and I think that's where you well, but I think yeah. you know when you think about marketing piece, I think what you have to think about is just like what is the story of the person that would buy this course? Yeah, so that's right. An, an, an exercise that I do with my clients, and an exercise that I do with even just individual clients one on because I do individual coaching as well. Um, but also for organizations and I said, what is the story about the person that would be buying from you or the person that would be learning from you? And so we get into this whole entire, you know, dynamic of this is Stan. Stan is 45 years old. He's losing his hair. Uh, he's in a miserable relationship. Um, he doesn't really like himself and he's looking for a uh, transformative change in his life. And it, it's down there, but he needs a push insert you as coach. I can help Stan feel good about himself. I, I'm a health nutritionist or health co wellness coach. And I have a system that works for guys like Stan to say, you know what, I mean, I want to lose weight. I want to change my life. And fitness often to us is the easiest way to make dramatic change. Why? Because it's tangible. When you start losing weight and you start feeling seeing in the gym and you're going from 10 pound dumbbells to 15 to 20 to 25, we as human beings go, oh, wow, I'm actually making change. That's why fitness, you see such dramatic changes so fast is because when people start seeing pounds are being lost, muscle is being built, mood is improving, they go, I got to keep doing this. Yeah, the mental a, work, yeah. the mental work is where we really, truly struggle. So for something for you to consider as well is what is the story of the person that is going to be buying this course? It may be somebody who needs the intensive like this is Judy. Judy's been working in corporate for five to 10 years and she's like. I'm getting passed up for my promotions. I've not, you know, I, I know I'm a good worker. My organization really hits me, but I've hit a ceiling. I'm only good, but I want to be great. This course might be for someone like Judy who goes, if I learn all of this stuff and I'm a how-to person and I can apply it at my job, the chances of me crushing the next project that I get assigned is going to get me that promotion or that 
that compensation or that pay increase. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think you mentioned earlier, like um, when you were talking about like sales and like knowing who you're yeah. selling to, like one of the biggest things I think people don't spend enough time on is really like narrowing down who their customer exactly is, like kind of how you've mm. described it in detail. Um, but my, I don't want to take, I want to, I want to talk sure, sure. about, I have so many questions for you and we have so little yeah. time. We'll have to do a part two. We'll have to do a part two. I'd love to come back so, for a part two. Yeah, but I do want to talk to you because you also, um, so you have um, Live Your Truth Media, but mm. you've also written two books. And listen, yes. writing a book is not an easy feat. It's <laughs> time consuming. Some people yes. would describe it as like hitting your head against the wall. Um, mm. But you've done not one, but two. And mm. I actually had the pleasure of like reading your second book which I thought was interesting. So do you want to give just a little synopsis of what that sure. book is about and why you decided yeah. to do it? Yeah, absolutely. So my second book is called The Road Ahead and Miles Behind, a story of healing and redemption between father and son. And so just to give you some background on this, um, I grew up with a father who was the embodiment of a provider. And he worked extremely hard. He was an entrepreneur. I learned a lot of my entrepreneurial skills from him. Um, but like most men, during that day and age in the 80s and the 90s, and even earlier for that, um, provision was number one, is putting food on the table and the roof over the head for the family. And oftentimes at that standpoint, it was, I will make it to uh, my kids' events when I can, or client calls precede uh, my kids' baseball games. And if I miss my kids' baseball games, that's okay, there'll be another one. Because, because this business deal is actually going to give us more room to provide and put a roof over our head. So I grew up with that. And my dad did an amazing job providing. Um, it also created a dynamic where I started realizing that there were things that I needed from my dad as a young boy that I didn't get, which was the guidance of what it really truly means to be a man and exploring things for myself and asking thought-provoking questions um, I was missing a lot of that emotional and spiritual depth. And so as I got older, I started realizing that we were um, we were very conflicted in our in our beliefs and our truths and the way that we see things. And so what happened was I started to develop some resentment towards him because I started realizing that it was in a lot of ways, what I thought was it was always about him. You know, he's making money, therefore it's about him and dad's putting food on the table. So it's like, whatever he says goes. And that's very hard for us as young, as young men, um, when we're battling and combating resistance and also for daughters and their mothers too, when we start getting to a certain age in the teenage years and we start getting a little bit of those hormones kicking in and we want to combat mom and dad. And, you know, instead of working in collaboration, that's where those, those years start. And for me, it was a lot of pain. Uh, it was a lot of a lot of seeking validation and approval from my dad to see that I was of value. And honestly, I talk about it in the book, but the only time I really truly felt value when I was wearing my uniform in the Marines because yeah. it symbolized something. Yeah, and you had an interesting line that was around um, when you left the Marines, you felt like you weren't worth parading around anymore. Yeah. I found that line really interesting. Like, yeah, it speaks volumes, you know, that one sentence. So you yeah. go from feeling like your dad is finally like acknowledging you, 
proud of you, introducing you to all of his friends whenever you come home to mm-hmm. now you're not a Marine anymore and you feel like you've lost your value. Yeah. And so many of us is, and, and so many of us, like we, we do things subconsciously to appease our parents. So, and we're looking for that approval because we didn't get it when we were kids in the manner that we thought we were going to get it. And so for me, it was like, is this enough? Is wearing a uniform for you, dad, enough for you to acknowledge that I am worth something? Because my dad, I think in a lot of ways, I used to be angry at him thinking like whatever I did wasn't good enough. I actually realized that my dad wanted nothing but the best for me. But the way that it was construed to me or the way that I received it was not in a manner that I felt was beneficial to me unless I did something of high praise or accolade. And so for years, I started feeling this friction and, you know, right on the cusp of in my two years ago, right before the 2020, the year that we all love. And so, you know, for me, it was the year I remember in January of that year, I was like, this is a new year. And I remember I'm going to tell my dad once and for all that we're done. I'm tired of speaking his approval and his validation. And uh, throughout the course of COVID and, you know, deciding at the time when the world completely stopped, I started realizing that I needed to make reconciliation because for me, COVID was very hard for a lot of people. Um, It was also transformative for a lot of people too. And for me, COVID happened to be a a very transformative year. I grew a lot as a person that year. And I remember praying to God at this time going, you know, God, if you can hear me, I just want something with my dad. I don't care if it's like a cordial ground that we walk on. I don't care if we ever, if it's just one phone call a year, I just want something because I don't want to live the rest of my life and regret knowing I could try that something could happen or after trying so hard, I just said, I just want something. I don't, I don't want to have this like weight of us just hanging on our head, this like unresolved stuff. And lo and behold, when God and universe or spirit, whoever you choose to call it, listens to you, um, it will give you exactly what you want to. It just won't tell you when you're getting it. And so for me, I've been asking and praying <laughs> for that. And so I get delivered this package, so to speak, in the form of a phone call where my dad calls me up and says, hey, do you got a minute to talk? And I go, sure. And I thought we were going to talk about the same stuff we've been talking about since I was a kid, football, stocks, business, uh, once in a while, maybe life advice. And my dad says, how would you like to go on a cross-country road trip with me? We've never really traveled together, and I think it'd be great if we did that. Now, remind you, this is in the middle of the pandemic, and I'm looking at my dad and hearing him talk about this going, you must be absolutely nuts for all the fights in the years that we've kind of gone at each other. You want me to get into a car with you for 11 days, and in this Mercedes Sprinter van, and for those of you who don't know what a Sprinter van is, if you've ever seen an Amazon van come by your house and drop off a package, that's a that's roughly a sprinter van. So imagine being with somebody that you've had all of these uh, friction and resistance and grinding against now in the car with you, offering to drive with you and hang out with you for 11 days. And mind you, this was during my birthday. And I, you know, and Janet, I got to be honest with you. I wanted to say no to him. Yeah, I really did because it was my, it was my final time to just do a kind of like a read between the lines thing. If you're holding your hand up, you know what I mean? And I was like, I'm going to finally tell him no. But a voice came into my head that that conversation that said, uh, Michael, you need to go on this trip with your dad and maybe the only one that you get with him. And I remember those words and I remember listening to my dad pitching me this road trip and I started recognizing that there was something about this opportunity that got presented to me. 
I believe in a lot of ways, life gives us a ton of windows to climb through and it will just come to us in either as a series of seconds, minutes, hours, days, sometimes even months or years. Little did I know that the years and years that I had prayed to have something with my dad would come in the form of a 10 minute phone call. And I ended up finding out that this is what he wanted. And so I said, yes. And the book really entails uh, the journey of my dad and I getting to know each other, not just as men, but as father and son again, and realizing that I carry certain things from him um, that we're more alike than we are same. And there's a big, there's a big difference in that. And I talk about that in the book, but more importantly for everybody out there that has something with their mom and their dad, just know it's never too late to have something with your parents and that they want something as bad with you as you do with them. It's just, can you meet them in the middle? Can you accept and forgive yourself? And can you love them where they're at? Because a lot of times they already unconditionally love you. Believe it or not, if you don't think your parents don't love you, they really truly do. Because it's a bond that's so deep and profound that we can't understand it. But oftentimes as children, we want things to be a certain type of way because we see mom and dad as mom and dad and we forget that they're actually people. They had a life before us. They were doing stuff. My dad went to Woodstock. My dad was building businesses. My dad was my dad was like so cool when he was before he had me. He had this amazing life. And I didn't know that. And I realized at the end of the day, all he was doing was just giving me a life better than the one that he got. And that yeah. helps me understand. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I, I don't want to give, I have so many questions I want to ask you, but yeah, I'm not sure. going to ask you today because okay. um, A, we're going to run out of time, but B, I also want to give away the book. I don't want to yes. give away what happens in the book, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I will say a few different things. Like one is I love the journey. Like I loved you. where you started and where you went to. Um, and I also love that you shared like your internal voice a lot. Mm. And with that internal voice, do you think that you've always had that? Or do you think that's something that you developed as you have gotten older and had more experience in life? I would say that internal voice has matured just as much as I have. So when I was a kid, it never, it didn't, you know, it wasn't, it, <laughs> when I was a kid, that internal voice or that conscious, that, you know, the, the conscious or the compass, as some of us may refer to as, was not as fully mature as it is now. And it's because the wisdom that I've accrued has all come from the experiences for me, utilizing that in the service of others and being in alignment with what God has presented to me. So for me, it was, the inside voice or the internal voice recognizing that was really from a stream of events and experiences that I've had recognizing that, you know, Michael, you've never actually presently been with your dad. It's always been, why am I here? Dad's dragging me to another thing. And like, how many times have we gotten dragged to events as kids and been like, Oh my God, like this sucks. I'm hanging out with my parents. And we don't realize how valuable those moments are until we're older. And so for me, that inner voice um, really, I think, truly developed over the last probably five years where I started recognizing and trusting myself more. And remember, we go back to trust. I trusted myself in this moment after the years and years of experiences and the wisdom that I've accrued and been taught and then passed down to me and the knowledge that I've picked up, that this was a chance for me to really change the dynamic and the relationship with my dad. And so my inner voice or that internal compass really wouldn't have known that this was the opportunity without recognizing that every choice that I've made, every experience that I've ever had in my life, life led me up to the moment that I received that phone call. Yeah. And I love that it also changes the story between mm. you and your dad, right? So the story yeah. changes. Um, I do think that it is, 
amazing that it's written by a male and that it is between two males. I think we need mm -hmm. more of those types of conversations mm -hmm. and books to be put out in the world. Thank so you. So people can be appreciative that, you know, men have feelings too. <laughs> Yes, right? men do have feelings. Yes. <laughs> men do have feelings. Um, and I, I don't know that we acknowledge that enough. And I don't know that we necessarily think about how they are conditioned from a young age to provide and maybe suppress so many other things. So I'm looking yeah. forward to everyone reading your book, Mike. I can't wait. And um, we're totally running out of time. And I usually I love to ask people one last question. And the last question is, if you could have a billboard anywhere with a message on it, I steal this from Tim Ferriss, um, with yeah. a message on it, what would that message say? Yeah, it's never too late to have something with your parents. Yeah, that would I love be my. That. I love yeah. it. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Mike. I am. Thank uh, we you, are Janet. gonna have to do part two. Like we could talk yes. for hours, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. If people want to know more about you, where should they go? What's the best? Yeah, sure. Well, um, I'm pretty active on Instagram, so uh, you can find me on Instagram at Mike.Ligori. That's L-I-G-U-O-R-I. -I. You can also go to my website, MikeLigori.com, uh, M-I-K-E-L-I-G-U-O-R-I. Um, and then also the book is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Uh, I would be so gracious for everybody to pick up a copy and please tag me on Instagram and share with me how the book has impacted you. Um, I've already gotten so many people who have read like the previous copies of the advanced copies of it telling me how much it's transformed their way of thinking around their own relationship with their parents. Um, and that to me is the true currency. It's it's just really beautiful to see this. And I think it's, uh, I think it's leading to a larger conversation that people are gonna start having about the way that they interact with themselves, their parents, and also their future kids or their current kids. So it's exciting, but thank you so much, Janet, for having me on. It was really an honor and a pleasure to be here. No, thank you so much. And I'll look forward to part two. Yes, absolutely. We'll, we'll have to do it again. This was great. So thank you.